Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, it does me great pleasure to introduce our guest co-host for today, and I'm super excited to have her. I know this is going to be a tremendous conversation, so you all know how we do it here on the Intentional Conversations podcast. I'm going to provide her bio because I want you all to know her accolades, her credentials, how she shows up to this work in this space, and then I will invite Deepa to greet you in her own way, and she will share maybe some things that um, we would not necessarily know about her just by reading her bio. Deepa Prashathaman is a former senior executive and corporate inclusive visionary. She challenges and redefines the status quo of leadership, success, and power by centering the needs and experiences of women of color. As a senior partner at Deloitte, Deepa spent more than 20 years helping clients in the technology and telecommunications industries transform and grow. She also focused on women's leadership and inclusion strategies as the managing partner of WIN, Deloitte's pioneering globally renowned women's initiative and was the first Indian American woman and one of the youngest people to make partner in the firm's history. After leaving Deloitte in 2020, Deepa co-founded Information, a membership-based community for professional women of color, offering brave, safe, and new space and placing them in C-suite positions and on boards. Deepa's book, The First, The Few, The Only, I'm holding it up right now, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America, was published by HarperCollins in March of 2022 to international acclaim. Deepa is a TEDx is a TED and SXSW speaker and has been featured across multiple publications, including Time, PBS, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Financial Times, and Harvard Business Review. Do me a favor, podcast community, and please, in your own way, go to the chat, pull those emojis, but let's please help show a warm welcome to our guest co-host today, Deepa, as I know she is going to really be a treat as we hear more about her experience and, um, and the work that she's doing. So Deepa, first and foremost, thank you so kindly for saying yes to our invitation. And I'm just delighted that, you, that you're here. I think it's also appropriate to mention that you're in LA. And so it's super early for you. We don't take that lightly, but we are so grateful. And so just greet this audience in your own way, Deepa, and just help us to know maybe some things about you that we wouldn't be able to learn just by reading or hearing your bio. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I can just see how warm and um, engaging the audiences just from that welcome. I don't think I've ever received a welcome like that that I'm seeing in the chat. So thank you. And thank you for having me again. Um, just a few things that are not uh, on the bio because that's a long bio. Um, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in a very small farm country town. And so, you know, concepts of fitting in and belonging were always a real issue to me. I think we had four students of any sort of color in the school that I went to. And so um, really just big questions around belonging. Um, another fun fact is we moved uh, from San Francisco to Los Angeles right before COVID. And so although I've been here now for three years, I don't really know LA very well because I haven't been out and about all that much. So that's kind of next on the, on the uh, horizon. Um, and then we rescue animals. So, you know, if I am not doing all of these things, I'm usually um, picking up poop or cleaning up throw up or, or something not very exciting in the background. Um, and so currently we have three dogs and a cat. 
So yes, it's, uh, there's a lot going on in the house. <laughs> Fantastic. I love that. I love that. Rescue animals. Okay. So I want to jump right in because these hours, they always go by so fast. And there's so much that I know that this audience could gain value from, from learning and hearing as, as you and I engage in conversation. But you write that the structure of corporate America was not built for us or by us. What does that mean for women of color trying to navigate their careers and what needs to change? Yeah, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to say when I say that, and I often say corporate America is not a meritocracy, like in, in addition to that, is trying to get people to understand that, you know, we can only take responsibility for so many things. And I feel like your audience is going to be well-versed in this conversation. But sometimes when I have that discussion, uh, people don't realize how much we have been told we have to work harder, we have to do more. And the women of color I work with are exhausted, are burnt out, are traumatized. They're at such a point of over-efforting. And so part of the message that I'm trying to share is that, yes, there are certain things we can do and certain things we can, you know, quote unquote, lean into, but there's a lot about the system and how it was set up that doesn't work for us. And so we should not take responsibility for those things and we should draw our lines because otherwise we're going to continue to be sick. So that's a little bit of what that means. Um, I tell a quick story in the book um, that's just maybe helpful for context where I sat down with Renee Meyer. She's the VP of inclusion for Netflix and she's a good friend. And we started talking about airplane design. And she was saying when she was a young mom, when her kids were little, she would really stress out about having to put luggage overhead because what if, you know, during turbulence, it fell on her children's head. And she would think like, why was it designed that way? And I shared with her, I'm five one, so I'm, I'm tiny. And when I used to fly, I used to do three cities a week. Like the process of getting the suitcase on and taking the suitcase off six times a week was really stressful for me. And we had such a fascinating conversation about how in such a small space, here are two women of color having completely different experiences. She's tall, by the way. And so she didn't even think about the height thing. And so just like, it's a great example of how a space wasn't designed with us in mind. And at that time, when that space was designed, there were only two or 3% of Boeing designers who were actually women. So it makes sense to me. I think in the same way, workplaces weren't designed with us in mind, like the hours that we work, how we work, where we work, you know, temperatures, table heights, there's a lot of like things about design that were designed for the male body, you know, just, just to put, you know, put it simply. Right. And so really understanding, again, what we take responsibility for and what we give back is so important in this work. No, I love that, Deepa. And I think it becomes even more important to amplify that point around design and who was it really set up to, to create success for when we consider this distributed workforce environment that we're in, right? Oftentimes, we assume that the work from home or the work remote is going to look the same way across each individual, and that's not the case. And so it, it certainly brings to the to the forefront, the need for us to be much more intentional about all of those who are going to be impacted and let those decisions about the design to inform that. So I, I appreciate that. I also love the use of the word over-efforting. I took notice of that. Mm -hmm. First time I've heard that, but I love it. I think a lot of us find ourselves over-efforting, especially again, to your point, women of color, because we always feel like we have to show up a certain way. We always have to be like superhuman. We're not, not as much forgiveness and grace is extended to us when we make those mistakes. So I want to talk about the use of women of color, because I know that, you know, again, as a practitioner in this space, and Deepa, I know that you probably heard and have been a part of so many conversations, you know, no one group is a monolith. And so sometimes when we use the labeling of women of color, it can tend to dilute some of the very unique and specific needs of, of certain 
populations within yeah. that broad category. So how do you navigate that as you've been, as you've released your book and as you continue yeah. to express this really important messaging as part of your platform? Yeah, no, and I, I love that you asked the question and I love that this is a conversation set up. Yes. By the way, there's no right answer to that, to the, you know, to that question. I'll be honest with you, I um, really struggled with writing a book on women of color. I really felt, you know, and I sold my book six weeks after George Floyd's murder. And so I really struggled with in that moment that summer, you know, could I even write a book on women of color? Mm. Um, did I have permission as an Indian woman to, to write mm. that book? And I really struggled almost for the first six months. I remember I reached out to Minda Hartz a number of times and I was like, Minda, is it okay? Like what, you know, what is your advice? And I talked to so many people in the space. And eventually I just got to the place where there was a professor that I interviewed from UCLA and he had a perspective and it was not about women of color, but it was about people of color. And he's a political yeah. sort of professor. And so he was saying political circles, he does use the term people of color because it actually explains some of the political suppression yeah. and some of the challenges that, that different groups can face when they're, you know, quote unquote, in the out group. And that if you actually come together, there's more power in that. It doesn't take away from what he calls, he calls it a super identity. And he said, it doesn't take away from being, you know, Black in America or Indian in America, but it's almost like a way we can come together and talk about some of the shared experiences. So I liked that sort of definition of it, it was an empowering way to bring yeah. us together. And what I found, and I should say I interviewed 500 women of color in writing the book, is that there were certain patterns and certain experiences that were shared yeah. in the workplace. I would not say our experience is the same in the world. But there are certain experiences in the workplace that are shared and where I needed to make nuance. Like I did say black women face this, you know, yeah. um, immigrant women, by the way, have a completely different experience, especially if English is not your language. I, I tried to call it out in the book where I could, but it was done in an attempt to kind of bring us together, because I think, by the way, a lot is done in especially corporate spaces, but workplaces to divide us, because when we're divided, then it's harder to kind of say this is a universal problem that, you know, a structure organization needs to fix. So for me, it's a term of power, but I know it's complicated and there's lots of perspectives on it. No, it really is. And I think that you do a great job of striking that balance. Again, I, I have not completed it yet, but I am in the midst of it. And I've noticed where there have been certain areas where you have called out with specificity, who are we talking about in this particular context when we are addressing kind of women of color. So I do appreciate that. You also mentioned Minda Hart. She is a, a great friend and um, to this podcast and to me personally. And so we've had her on a couple of times. And I know that um, she is a big fan of yours and your work. I've seen her talk very too, highly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm very highly about, um, you know, your book. And so I, I just wanted to bring that to the conversation. So how do we begin, Deepa, to reframe the fit in and lean in mentalities that have left women feeling burnt out or isolated in the workplace? And as a follow up to that, how can women of color move past the idea of working harder to get ahead? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a little bit in that over efforting, you know, conversation that we started. Um, and again, I think Minda, by the way, says this so well, where she talks about like, you know, leaning doesn't work, especially for black women, like that right. I do more. And so one of the interesting things that I found in the research was that almost all of the women I interviewed were taught they were going to have to do more. The black women I interviewed were taught they had to work two or four times as hard as their white colleagues, whereas a lot of the Asian and Latinx women I met were taught they had to work twice as hard. So there's a little bit of difference in how much effort, but it was literally always 99.999%. You're going to have to work harder. And that message we get when we're little and we carry it like throughout our entire lives. And so it's such a hard message and it's a message of that you just have to accept that you have to do more. And one of the most surprising things, I don't know if you got to this in the book yet, 
But the most surprising things that I found in the research is that literally two out of three of the women I interviewed are physically sick. Yeah. They had skin rashes. I'm now I'm hearing a lot of like hair loss, but skin rashes, heart, you know, heart issues, um, stomach pains, you know, migraines, headaches, you know, you, there's about 12, you know, symptoms that I found um, over and over again. And they're physical manifestations. They're not just like, I'm not feeling well or I'm tired. It's a whole different level of trauma. And that's part of what's wrong with that lean in, you know, do more mentality. And I think part of what I'm trying to make sure we understand is that get message is so early and yeah. so often that unless we unprogram it or deprogram it, it's easy to keep doing that and keep doing more. And so it's a really hard message. That was one. Another was don't rock the boat for certain communities. That was something that I heard often. Yep. And then, you know, just, just be grateful. Like those yeah. three things I would say are probably the three things I heard most often. And I think are the most harmful things to women of color. Cause it's a, it's an unconscious or a soft message of like, just accept what's the status quo. Exactly. And I think it keeps us in our place. Right. And that's not, yes. that's not where we are today. Yeah. And that's not our place. It keeps us right. in a place, yes. but not yes. our place. Yeah. Like what they, what they mean. Quote, I just, yes. no, exactly. I knew, I knew precisely what yeah. you meant. Um, so I, I, I want to shift here a little bit because there's uh, a big groundswell of, of interest and, um, and commentary that's happening around this phenomenon that's been labeled quiet quitting. And I know that you've also spoke a little bit about it in some of your, your social media posts. But what you just shared was that in, the, in interviewing these women for the book, so many of them articulate, which I felt this because it's been my situation too, that I have to, you have to always do more in order to just be on par, right? And so when I think about this movement that feels like it's starting to create a good bit of popularity among some populations, I do worry a little. Mm -hmm. I worry that for the women of color who or of this mindset that I do have to do more and show up a certain way and kind of outdo my you know, white male counterparts in order just to be on par. If we buy into this quiet quitting, which again, there's a whole lot of conversation around really what does that mean? Because the nomenclature there is not perfect. But if, we, if they buy into that and they stop trying to really go hard and, and do above and beyond, what would that do in terms of perpetuating or not um, the, the conditions that so many people are gravitating to because it's just been how it's always been done. Yeah. Have you, have you contemplated yeah. that? I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I do have, I have a lot of thoughts around it, you know, in, in, in like short order, I kind of, I, I agree. Like, and I see some of the comments, I don't like the term quiet quitting. And that's a lot of what mm. I've been writing about. I don't know. But I also think that, um, it is a really interesting concept. So, and we can come back to this idea, but I ended up getting really sick. That's part of why I ended up doing this mm. research and I ended up writing the book. And for me, like one of the things I learned over, like I literally spent eight months in bed. I had to go see, you know, 15 wow. doctors. Like it was a long process was I would, if I was going to stay, I would have to do my job differently. Like I would have to not be chasing the next thing and really set different boundaries. I don't know if that would have come with ramifications, but it's just what I would have had to do to stay right. in that space. And so to me, there is a different way of working where you're always not chasing the next thing and there's potentially ramifications, but I think that's the choice. And we don't realize that that's sometimes a choice that we can choose our health or our boundaries or our families. But usually we're, if you're in especially high charging sorts of environments, which I was in, you're taught there's only one way to do it. And I think that's part of the conversation. I'll, I'll you know, one story that comes to mind that I think really you know, speaks to this is this idea. There's a chapter in the book called um, the job and the job, how much extra work women of color do at work. And I literally talk about all the different kinds of roles. Mm -hmm. And there's one story that I always talk about because it still like gets me emotional. 
Um, it was a black woman that I was speaking to from the Midwest and we were 45 minutes into a conversation and she started crying. And she mm -hmm. said, until you started asking me these questions, I don't think I realized how much extra I do. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, I took this job six months ago. I knew I was the only black woman in the department. I've come to find I'm the only black woman in the entire company. Mm -hmm. And then this is where she got emotional. I moved my husband and my kids. We're the, one of the only, I think she said three black families in the entire town in the surrounding area. Wow. And so she said, I'm literally the only black woman that a lot of my white colleagues have ever met. And so, and then she did air quotes. I feel responsible for representing my race in a good oh. way. And I've heard similar things from the Muslim women I've met, you know, interviewed from some of the immigrant women. I've, it, it, so it's common, maybe the exact you know, details of it are different. Mm -hmm. But she said, I change how I wear my hair, what I talk about, what I eat, like the pictures I have in my office. And she went through this really long list. And what was so crazy to me was that she is not a comms person or an HR person or in a role where those kinds of things maybe like is something she would think about. She's an accountant. And yet she felt so responsible. And so that's an example where I don't know if it's quiet quitting, but it's like, I'm, she didn't want to take responsibility for that anymore. She's like, that's not my job, but I never even stopped to realize how much I was doing that. So yeah. to me, that's like more boundary setting or being really clear, right. the extra work that you're doing that takes a toll that you are going to say, like, I just can't humanly do anymore. Like, that's not my responsibility in all situations all the time. So yeah. I think that there is something in between quiet quitting, which is a thing to, you yeah. know, boundary setting to women of color, just saying no, you know, in yeah. ways that are palatable. Cause I agree, you can't say no to everything. And, and there's ways you can say no to things, which I've learned. I've been working with a lot of negotiation professors. Mm -hmm. and there are such, you, there are ways to set boundaries that I never did. Right? I never even thought about myself that now if I could go back, I would say, you know, yes, I'll take on an extra role, but I want this instead, or next year, put me on this canoe. There's ways you can trade to also get what you want, which to me is maybe a redefinition of quiet quitting. It's like, again, boundary setting, but we're not often taught to do that. We're taught to be grateful, right? And that greatness yes. kicks us in the butt so often. Oh, absolutely. Be grateful. You're here. You have a spot. Is that not enough? Yes. And that's, that's harmful. That's harmful. And so I, like you, I do believe that the, the labeling of this, this concept um, is challenged in many, in many ways, you know, quiet quitting. Cause you know, as, as we've expressed in, in different ways, it's not about someone quitting. It's about someone really leaning into those boundaries that are necessary. Um, I'm also hearing though, that as it relates to this concept, there's a population of people that really truly believe instead of quitting, and I use the air quotes there because again, it's it's debatable what that looks like and what that really means. Why not just shift and go to a different workplace where you can feel like, yes, you want to, to give your all. And I think that's problematic as well because it's coming from a place of, of privileged thinking, maybe because of the experience of being in work environment to where you don't feel like you don't wanna give your all, right? And it's easier said than done. I mean, yes, I do believe that, that women of color certainly have the agency to find other opportunities, but I, I'm also thinking that people are missing the mark a little bit and being so dogmatic about it, um, presumably being an easy thing to do just immediately. So I just wanna get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think it, it's missing a larger concept. I think that the last few years have unpacked for us, and I, for me, quiet quitting is more of a conversation about work not working for most people. I think that's yes. really what it's under underlining, right, or, or highlighting, I should say. And I think what we're recognizing is that there are certain principles, I would say, and go as far, and I say this in the book, with capitalism, that I think a lot of us are just questioning. Like, look at the environment, look at what's happening to, you know, in Pakistan, like literally this week, like, you know, like there is just a situation happening where some of the ways that we do business and the values that we have as a, as a world don't really match. And I think 
for women of color in particular, a lot of us grew up in cultures where there was more collective thinking. There was like more community success. And so there's like, for me, quiet quitting is really a values conversation, right? It's almost like how much are you going to let work take over your life? And is it priority number one? Or are we kind of saying, no, like you don't get to have all of it. I'll do my job. We're not saying I'm not going to do my job. Exactly. I'm not going to sacrifice myself anymore. And that's, I think, the difference of what um, is really important to understand. Like to me, it's a values flag and I'm glad we're having it. You know, again, I don't love the term and I don't think it's always being conveyed the right way. But it's one that we need to have because the last few years have really unpacked a lot of what's broken in the workplace. Yeah, no, really really good conversation. So I want to move forward and I want to talk a little bit about some of what you have in your book. And I don't want to give it all away because I'm encouraging each of you. And again, we will place into the chat um, the book so you can uh, purchase it for yourself. But um, you just shared a story of this woman who was the only, right? And so what is your main advice to women who are the first, the few, and the only? And then also, Deepa, as a follow-up to that, how did being the first for you shape your own workplace experience? Yeah, so maybe I'll start with that because it's it's like mm-hmm. the first question. So, you know, I, like I mentioned, grew up in a completely white space, went to very elite institutions, and then joined Deloitte right out of grad school. And I was serving, as you, as you kind of shared, tech and telecom clients. And so a lot of my, the people in, in the rooms I was in were men, right? And white men. And so I was often, you know, definitely the only uh, woman of color and often the only woman. And so that sense of like not, not having other people that looked like me was really there. I think also for a lot of us, when you don't see yourself on television, don't see yourself in the media. I never saw a teacher that looked like me. There were hardly any women out that worked outside of the home in the bubble that I was in, you know, <laughs> you know y- y- decades ago. Um, you kind of get this message of what you can and can't be. And so for me, it was a really active sort of messaging around, like, you don't have to see it to be it, which is the opposite of what I think we tell little girls Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. And I had to be really conscious. Like, I'm not going to see someone that looks like me, Mm -hmm. but I can take like different pieces from different people and really create like how I want to show up. So I was very intentional about the kind of leader I want to be. And I think that also ties to what we were just talking about. Like, I think we've all been a little bit brainwashed of like how you have to be to be successful and I, I understand, yes, there are certain expectations around us, but I think that sort of like you have to be this way to be successful doesn't work for most of us. And that's why women of color are sick or that's why people of color get to a certain level and are like, is this worth it? That's really for me, like how this, you know, the first few only all came about. So here I am, you know, 16 years in my career, you know, having bigger, bigger questions about purpose. Um, and then all of a sudden I start to get sick and it's like mounting, mounting, mounting mm-hmm. issues. And share that story in a minute if you want, because I did have like a defining moment. And then mm-hmm. I started meeting with women of color because I wanted to just casually understand like over, you know, dinner, drinks, like where does one go after, you know, 16, 20 years in one's career? Like what's a good industry for women of color? Like what should I be doing at the senior level? Like people didn't quit my job at that point. Like usually once you make partner, you stay because that's mm-hmm. when you're going to make more money. It's almost like yeah. tenure, right? Like it's, 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 yeah. it makes sense to leave. And so I was looking for just advice. We ended up doing, and I, I'm, I did this with my now business partner, Ra, we ended up doing about 15 dinners across the country. Again, they were just networking dinners without a lot of like clear intention. And those dinners were what became the company, but also became the book. And it was one statement that a woman made in our first dinner that I heard over and over again. She was a CFO at a public company. So you can imagine like a really big role. Mm -hmm. And she said, I sit in a seat of power and I don't feel powerful. 
Mm. And I heard that over mm. and over and over again from these women. And by the way, so I ended up meeting 300 senior women of color, almost all director level and above VP level and above because we went pretty senior. And they're all saying this, they're all finishing each other's sentences. They're all sitting in these dinners, I thought for one or two hours, instead six, seven, eight hours, finishing each other's sentences saying, I'm questioning if the sacrifice was worth it. I'm questioning if I'm having to conform too much and give up parts of myself. So to me, that's a lot of what this discussion is about. And being a first of you and an only, you kind of have been taught you have to behave, you have to, you know, be smaller than you are, that you have to fit in, you have to conform because the leadership that came before us didn't look like us. Right. And my message is that you end up in a situation where you're not happy, you're not pleased, and you're not feeling powerful. And so it does a disservice to you. But by the way, it also does a disservice to the company because you're not getting like our most innovative thinking in our full selves. Right. So that's really where that first few and only thinking comes from. You're the first in your family to go to college. You're one of the few in a department or a company. And you're the only, you know, in a C-suite. And I, I have more words that I define it with, but it's that experience. And we should look at those women and we say, you're trailblazers. You're amazing. We don't ask them how hard it was. And part of my message is we need to talk about how hard it is because I don't want to keep making one or two or three and like saying they're the exception. I want to say like, what's holding us back from making many? That really should be the conversation. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, let's get let's get to the crux of the matter so we can really solve this, yeah. right? Yeah, no, that's so good. And um, Andrea, I agree. She placed into the chat your statement of, I sit in a seat of power, but I don't feel powerful. Yes, that is incredibly profound. Um, that struck me as well. So one of the things that I want to make sure we amplify is that while this book is about how women of color can redefine power in corporate America, it is not just a book for women of color. And I believe that we need to make sure that we are really just echoing that as often as we can. So if you could encourage white leaders, maybe white male leaders in particular, to read this book, what would you tell them that they can expect to learn from it? And you'll appreciate this. So I'll share with you, um, book came out in March and I struggled for the first three or four weeks because every podcast or every journal, it got picked up quite a bit, but everybody who was interviewing me was a white man. And all the early feedback was from white male leaders who said, I don't feel comfortable. Like there's, I've been told I can't ask any more questions. So I'm just gonna go read the book to understand. There was so much interest and support from that community who I think wanted to understand. So I would say the book actually, surprisingly, I wrote it very specifically for women of color because there's not enough books written for us by us. And so I don't like define things. I don't, you know, had I known who was gonna pick it up I might've slightly written a different book. I literally wrote it for us. There's no, you know, code switching is just this. Like, I don't explain what it is. Um, and so I'm surprised. Like, so in a good way, surprised. Um, when I do these conversations now, and I've been in a lot of companies, I've actually probably been in two and 300 companies just since the book has come out because people are really mm. wanting to talk about this. Right. And one of the things um, I talk about in the book is microaggressions. And I say for women of color, uh, a racism, I, you know, microaggressions and racist incidents yeah. to me, that's a continuum, like they're not mm -hmm. different things. Um, I say often we have not been taught what to do or what to say in those incidents, right? And in those incidents, we often feel pain and shame and we can't you know, sometimes speak up or we're looking for other people in the room. And so I go through this exercise of, I want women of color to practice what they're gonna say and I want them to write it out. And then I want them to literally physically say it because sometimes in that moment, the shame takes over. Yeah. But what I started to do is I tell, and I call allies co-conspirators, I started, I started to tell white men, like, I want you to practice too, because one of the most surprising things, and I'll be curious if you have a different perspective on this, but in my research, 
most of us have not been taught, and I thought the Black women would have said differently, but most of us have not been taught what to do in situations that are racist or uncomfortable. Like our families just told us it's going to happen or, or you know, mm-hmm. you just move on or just make the best. Of, like, But we haven't literally been taught what to say or what to do. But what I'm learning is our white leaders haven't either. So if they're uncomfortable in a meeting or, you know, they witness something, they also have been taught you should be nice, I think, for the most part. That's kind of the undertow of what we've all been taught, right? Like just, you know, like grin and bear it, you know, or that's just, you know, that's be grateful, right? Back to the grateful or that's what's going to happen. And so I tell white leaders, I want you to physically write out, um, what you're going to say, three things. And then I want you to practice saying it because it's sometimes hard in the moment when someone just says something inappropriate and it can't fall upon you and I to do it all right. the time because that is hard. So it's right. like really teaching people that in the moment there are things that you can do that are the right thing to do and they don't have to be aggressive and, and put everybody off. And we need more of us to do that. So it's almost, I've taken the book and I feel like I've come up with a translation for white men that I was not expecting to do, but I also think that's how we make change. So I'm okay with doing it. I wasn't initially, but I, I am now. So. No, I totally agree with your approach there. And, and I do believe that it can benefit individuals to be a part of conversations where tools are being introduced that they can put into their toolbox. So when they find themselves in that situation, it's not completely catching them off guard. This is somewhat familiar to me. I think I know I'm going to pull out of my toolbox. Well, tell me more about that. I want to understand your perspective. What causes you to feel that way? And, and I think that those tools are needed because to your point, we aren't necessarily taught what to do in those situations, but I'm seeing um, more support of that type of, of, of learning and training, which I think is really useful. So I'm going to shift in just a moment. I want to be able to have our audience to share any questions they have directly for you, Deepa, or maybe any contributions to the conversation. You can do so by unmuting yourself, raising your hand, and I will um, add you as a spotlight. Or if you would like to just present your question into the chat, I will um, give you a chance to do that, and we'll bring that question to the conversation. I'm going to ask one more question, and then Tracy, I see your hand is raised, so you're the first person that I will call on. But Deepa, I want you to tell us about information. Tell us about it. Yeah, I will, and and Tracy's a member, so she can also weigh in. Um, information was created a little bit over a year ago and, you know, it was actually based on those dinners. So we did those dinners. Women would say it was the best thing they'd ever come to. When are you coming back to our city? I think originally when we, we envisioned it prior to COVID, we were thinking it might be more impersonal. We'll work with companies to like really, you know, host spaces for their women of color. Well, we'll it'll be more in-person event related because we need community. And, um, we had to get creative as the pandemic happened. So a lot of our programming is virtual. And um, we basically have conversations about the workplace and we hold space for open discussions. I'll give you two examples. When Naomi Asaka stepped away from the French Open, I remember a really profound conversation about how do we set boundaries for ourselves that we had with almost like 60 women just in discussion. You know, we, ha- we did one this week where it was about like, what are some of the barriers that we have been taught that, you know, that keep women of color like in our own mindset, like things like we're under-resourced or, or things like that we can't think bigger. So it's this conversation that we have, and it, it, I think it's discussions that we all think about, but we don't often have spaces to have them together. And it's been really impactful because we have them with women across all industries, uh, U.S. and Canada. Um, it's been really, I think, helpful to the women to just see each other. Like that was the discussion we have. Like more of our women are asking for more money or bigger positions because they see other women asking. And there's just, again, because we're few, first few and onlys, often we're isolated. And so it's, that's like one thing that we do as a community. The second is research. We did um, a big research project with Billie Jean King last year that got a lot of attention. 
um, and talking about what it's like to be a woman of color, um, it, but done by us for us. Like I think a lot of the research that's out there is, is about us. And so we right. might change that. Mm-hmm. And then this fall, we're going to announce a big initiative to place women of color on boards. And we're going to work with nice. the community to do that. So that's going to be our real focus, like community and, and holding kind of brave, safe space, you know, um, more research and then um, really trying to help, you know, have more discussions about how do we make more space for women of color on board. Great. I love that. So Tracy, I am adding you to the spotlight. I invite you to unmute yourself and share your question or your commentary for the audience. Thank you. Hi, Deepa. Welcome to this uh, platform. (laughs) I often frequent this platform and I learn so much. Um, I'm going to tease out a subject that we're dealing with in information and I want to bring it out for the the benefit of this group. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has to do with white women. And you know that when we have programs that center on women of color, people of color, oftentimes the beneficiaries of programs that are supposed to be for us end up benefiting white women. And how do we center on where the need is the most acute while not alienating uh, white women or white men in some cases, how do we make it so that it's not a zero sum game and, and bring them along when we have a specific need that we, we can't compromise on? Does that, do you understand the question? Yeah, I do. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's, and I don't have an exact answer, but yeah, let's talk about it because I think it's so important. Um, so a couple of thoughts, um, and then I'd, I'd love to hear both of you also weigh in. So one is I mentioned like women being sick was the biggest, you know, learning from the research for the book. The second biggest learning, so number two, and I say this in the book, was the feedback that I got on white women. So at the end of every single one of my interviews of all the 500, I would say, is there anything else you want to share? And the women of color would like literally look at the floor, would drop their voice because there was shame involved in saying this. But can you talk about how as women, we don't help each other. And it's usually white women that are our biggest obstacles. That then became the research we did with Billie Jean King. So we interviewed 1,700 women, white women and women of color, to really unpack like why is it that white women aren't helping in situations where they can? And to your point, like why do most programs, like board programs, have really helped white women? They actually haven't moved the needle on women of color. And so it's really understanding that. For me, it's like the bigger question or the, the most important thing we have to do around inclusion is we have to get out of this idea that there's limited seats and that we're redistributing, like that there is a pie. Because I find this, by the way, especially more with white men right now, like there's a fear that if the three, one of the three of us gets a chair, it's taking one from a white man. And that can't, it can't be a redistribution game. Like that can't be like what we're trying to talk about. We have to talk about how some of the processes, some of the philosophy doesn't work and we need to remake that, not just there's 12 seats. And so, you know, one of the three of us is fighting for what well, in the, we did a TED talk, Ron and I, we talked, we call it the broken chair. Like one of us is, you know, fighting for the chair designated for a woman of color because there has to be one, right? Like that's not the mentality. So I think it's a real issue. And I think um, this summer has made, I think that a real, a challenging question. You know, I do think there's new conversations about women's, you know, rights and like what it means to be a woman, a woman in, in the US, you know, um, and what else is going to be infringed upon in the months to come. And so um, I struggle, like, I still think we need programs for women of color, but I also think there's like a revived conversation about women as well that, that feels really relevant this summer. Yeah, Deepa, I'll just add that I, I think you're absolutely spot on. It's almost as though the pathway to success is perceived to be so narrow that 
it's it's not in in women's natural and particularly white women's natural inclination to say let me lift as I climb let let me let me lean back you know and try to make sure I'm pulling others up and so it becomes a challenge I also agree that I think the bravery of those who have been willing to call out what they what they are seeing just generally around um, the harm that a lot of white women um, are creating consciously and unconsciously is is now um, I guess causing people to be more sensitized to it, which the conversation in and of itself, I think is healthy because it's bringing attention to it, which mm -hmm. I can appreciate. But yes, that was a tremendous question, Tracy. Thank you so much. Yeah, I might just also just add one last thing, which is I've had this conversation with some white women and some who are brave enough to say this to me. Like, I think a lot of them feel like they never got all of their seats. They never got like a full chance. And all of a sudden now mm -hmm. women of color are, you know, joining the conversation. And so there's a little bit of like, I haven't gotten mine yet. You know, and again, I, I just think that's a really dangerous way to see the situation. Can I quickly add something? So where you were talking about the, the microaggressions and having examples, concrete examples of what people could do in those situations, maybe we can start with a tip sheet or something, having conversations around what white women can do in certain situations. Because some of it, I don't even think people are aware of. That's, that's just my two cents. Yeah, no, that's a great suggestion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Tracy. Okay, if you have any other questions, make sure you raise your hand or place them into the chat. We want to certainly bring it to our live dialogue today. Um, so you started to tell us a story earlier. So I'm hoping this next question is going to jog your memory on the story that you wanted yeah. to share. But um, you talked about in the book, leaving your company. How did that thought process unfold? What was it that led you to realize I now need to step away? Yeah, so I kind of shared, I was 16 years into my career. I had started to ask questions about purpose, right? I loved my job. I was moving quickly. You know, I had all the things, um, but I was just questioning, like at the time I was single, like I was trying to figure out how, how was I going to make my life work, right? So I had these questions around purpose in my life. And then I started to get sick. And the story I was going to say is, um, I, and I tell it in the book, I was at my 14th doctor. I got my final diagnosis. I, I, I have late stage Lyme disease. It's in recovery now. But I was at my 14th doctor and she's looking at me and she's a doctor I see in San Diego because I travel. Like I literally live out of a suitcase. And I remember her looking at me like sideways because I literally brought my suitcase to, to the appointment, right? And she says, like, we can keep running tests. I agree something is wrong with you, but we have, you know, I don't have a clear diagnosis for you yet. Um, or I think I can tell you what you already know. And I, I will never forget. She said, your job is killing you. And I want to ask you three questions. What would you do if you didn't do a big job like this? So do you feel like you have to have a job like this to be important or to feel valuable or to feel worthy? And, you know, thirdly, like, don't you see you're just worthy being you? And I remember those questions landing so profoundly for me. And I think for a lot of the women I work with who are these high achieving, high performance, like we've been taught, you know, to get our seats at the table, yeah. sometimes end up sacrificing some of that. And our worthiness is very much tied, and their parents were immigrants to this country, worthiness is very much tied to success and stability, you know, financial stability. Absolutely. And so then I had to go through a process of unpacking that. But I do think that that's a real challenge for a lot of us. Like we're, we're and it's not even like money, it's, it's stability. Like we, like we right. come from communities where there's scarcity. And so yes. we've been taught, you know, do anything to not have that scarcity. And it sets us up again for like this challenge of overworking and over efforting. And so that was a real wake up call to me. And I think really started a lot of my exploration on this topic. No, great. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And we are glad that now you're at a better place health-wise. And so 
Thank you for sharing. Sean, um, you have your hand raised. And so I want to invite you to unmute yourself and to share your question or comment. Thanks for joining us. Yes, it's so good to see you. So good you to too. be back. <laughs> it's been a while, I know. <laughs> I mean, I've been working hard though. Um, and good. thanks Glad to you to for letting it. me grace your platform a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> good morning to everybody on here. Good morning, Nika. Good morning, Deepa. Um, I follow you on LinkedIn, it's an honor. So my question is, you know, as someone as a DIB um, consultant, trainer, and strategist that educates about the harmful effects of the patriarchal system, um, and I have a very interesting perspective. I really think that when you look at where we are in the world, um, you know, men have been in control since, you know, um, whatever origin point you want to trace it back to, depending on your beliefs. Um, and I really think we need to turn over the helm to women for the next century to let, you know, um, you fix everything that's wrong in this world. Um, but a thing that I run into and what I want to ask deeper, my question is like, has she run into this? Has she noticed this? And how does she address it is my fear is that, you know, a lot of women, whether women of color, you know, or white women have been through so much and go through so much to get to where they're, where they're trying to go, you know, in their professional and, 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 and personal um, life. And sometimes what ends up happening is it, 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 it causes this divide, you know, um, between men and women. And I remember a very good friend of mine, Brandy, I saw a post that she made. It's like, I really long for the days where men and women um, realize that we need each other, you know, and it's like, and so I guess my, so I, I said all that, I provided context to ask the question is, how do we bridge that divide? You know, how do we bridge the divide where you know, we're, we're, especially for those that are of like mind, where we're trying to dismantle systemic oppression and patriarchal oppression. But there's a lot of women that have just, be honest with you, that have had it with men, you know, in our BS and like, just don't want us, don't want to deal with us and don't want us part of the process. Like, have you noticed that? And how do you deal with that? No, it's a good question. I, I, um, I did not find that in my research. Like, I, I yes, and I'll be, I'll be the first to say, like, I've been having moments in my life, especially after a bad breakup, where like I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> but for the most part, I did not find that. I feel like, to be honest with you, and again, I think that's why this moment is so interesting. As a result of COVID, I know a lot of like, I would say, of my generation and younger men who are also questioning like what they've been taught. You know, so to me, I come back to that values conversation, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. You know. And I'll share, I do an exercise when I do keynote speaking sometimes where I stand and I've written about this on LinkedIn. So you may have heard, I'm going to repeat a little bit, but I stand on stage and I say, I want you to think of a leader. I want you to think of a pilot, of a professor, of a politician, of a CEO. And I go through a long exercise and almost by default, everybody in the audience, including women, think of like white men in their forties, like with salt and pepper hair, like wearing a blue power suit, forties or fifties. At the end of my, that entire exercise, I say, I want you to think of someone you admire. And almost every, and it's much longer exercise. I'm taking like the, the, the unveiling out of it. But I say like, I want you to think of someone you admire and who is that? And almost everyone in the audience, men and women will think of like their grandmothers or some maternal figure, um, like a Mother Teresa type of person. 
And so to me, like the fact that we think of leadership, right, or patriarchy as, you know, powerful or as like leadership, and we think of the people we admire um, who are more, you know, empathetic or emotional or lead in a different way as different things is part of the disconnect. So for me, I don't know that it's like as much that women don't want anything to do with men. I think we're saying like the things that we value, like the aggressiveness, the assertiveness, the competition, the, you know, winner take all those kinds of philosophies that we attribute to men and patriarchy that we don't want. And that's broken. And I think I'm starting to see more men that don't want that either. So to me, that's the fight I want to have. It's the values and what we think is important and like the, the patriarchy concepts. And it's less about men and women for sakes. I think we're in a moment where more of us are willing to say like, that doesn't work. This doesn't work for men anymore. You know, you're all exhausted too in your own. Yeah. And I, you know, and I definitely appreciate, I definitely appreciate that. And I know, um, and I agree with you. I would say that, um, you know, when you look at the data, you know, like the data definitely, you know, and the empirical data like definitely doesn't point to like, it's just like that across the board. And that hasn't been my experience. Yeah. It's been more running into that in pockets. Yeah. You know, and depending pockets on what, of it for sure. Yes. Right. Yeah. And but when I did I not saw find it, that in, in the research in general with these high performing. It it just interests me when I when my friend Brandy, who is a woman, a very, you know, accomplished woman, when she posted that, I was like, aha. Mm -hmm. So that energy that I do run into every now and then is real yeah. because she posted it. But thank you for your response. So great analogy. Thank yeah. you. No, and I think it's real. I'm not, I'm not trying to deny that. I just think I don't know that it's as universal as um, sometimes we talk about in the media or, or we say, like, there's definitely pockets of it. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I don't get together with my girlfriends and, you know, mail bash every <laughs> once in a while. Great. Thanks so much, Sean, for being here and for your question. I do appreciate that. Yeah, I think there is something to be said about, you know, those of us who are really passionate about this work and making sure that we're centering the needs of the most marginalized. Do How can we do so in a way that holds um, people accountable, especially those that have the power and the privilege to be able to help shift and, and, and to adjust and modify these systems, but to do it in a way to where they want to engage because they want to, they want to be collaborative and doing so and not because they feel shame, guilted, judged, or blamed, because sometimes that divide certainly can keep people on the sidelines. And we, we need everybody kind of engaged in this work. So I, I appreciate I that. Love that. I think that's so yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, what's coming up for you next, Deepa? What do you have on the horizon? What else are you like really passionate about right now beyond, of course, continuing the message of the first, the few, and the only? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So yet yesterday was six months since the book has come out. So it yes. felt like a whirlwind. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like speaking is going to pick up again. So August yes. was a little bit quiet. It got quiet just because of uh, where we were in the year. And then September, October, November, I'm back to the circuit again yeah. a little bit. Um, and then I'll be honest with you, I am starting to pick up and really ask what's the next book I loved writing. Um, I do, I'm, I, so it may not be clear from this. I'm an off the charts introvert. So if I could sit in my house and like just write and never, never, you know, <laughs> go speak again, I'd be okay with that. Um, and so I'm thinking about what's next. What does that look like? And, um, you know, trying to figure out, is it, is it another focused book on women of color? So I'll, I'll ask this audience. So please, you know, yeah. message me on LinkedIn or whatever. Or is it larger? Like, is it more about leadership? And I'm torn. I think we need, we still need more books on, you know, about women of color. But I also want more of us to step into larger conversations about leadership because we know more than just women of, of color or DEI topics, which is also a little bit of what's happening. So yeah, yeah. That, and then I'm going to do a little bit more teaching. I'm, 
actually going to be an executive fellow at Harvard Business School. I'm switching over nice. here. And so I'm doing some more to really um, strengthen and, and talk about uh, programming for women of color there. So excited about that. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So um, we do have some additional time left. So if there are any questions from the audience, certainly feel free to raise your hand or place it into the chat. Um, I want to make sure that we can capitalize on this, this moment in time with Deepa. Um, while we're waiting to see what's coming up for people, I do want to ask you about um, some ways in which you're seeing workplaces evolve. Um, with all of these, you know, new and additional uh, concepts that are that are like quiet quitting or kind of surfacing, what are you seeing or some of the, the, the ways in which organizations are starting to evolve that you feel like serves um, society best? Yeah, you know, I think the beginning part of this, I just want to be clear, I think it's going to take a long time. Like, I don't think this is as simple as, um, you know, companies just start doing it or they have me or you come in for one conversation right. and solved. I think a lot of companies are kidding themselves, to be honest with you, and where they are in the process, you know, and that this is going to take probably, you know, more than a decade to solve because it took us decades to get here. I am excited that I think more people are having the discussion, but I think it's a lot about creating better and safer places for people to really tell their truths. Like I, there's a lot in the book about how women of color um, are truth tellers, right? And how yeah. we don't often get to tell our truth about the workplace and that the policies and processes actually in place hurt us when we tell our truth. So I think for me, like my advice to, to companies is one, you need to get better at listening and hearing because just mm. because you hold like a, a forum, like for people to share, doesn't mean like sharing is happening. Right. And two, like we really need to really figure out how we uh, change processes, like reporting processes, for example, around racism are completely broken in companies. There's actually more pushback and, and more retaliation um, than, there, than, than actually truth telling in those systems. And so really unpacking that. Yeah, no, I love that. Lindor, I see your hand up. One of the things that I'm hoping we can come back to before we close out today, Deepa, is yeah. that the broad conversation that's happening around the intersection of DEI and justice work. And so I want to hold that thought. But Lindor, I would love to spotlight you. Thanks for being here. Share your question or comment. Thank you. Can you hear me good? We can. Okay, great. Um, thanks for coming on today. I really have enjoyed your conversation, the questions and interaction, et cetera. Uh, I'm curious because I know you, I think you were a partner at Deloitte mm -hmm. and um, have had a lot of work with the accounting firms in general, the big four, the big eight. Um, and I know Deloitte has done um, some deep diving into the DEI space even before it was mm -hmm. called DEI and, and during your time there. So I'm curious about, is there a book, since that question came up, dealing more specifically with an industry that hasn't been as diverse as they have had the desire to? Mm -hmm. uh, because I think there's some lessons learned that can be pulled from the accounting industry per se yeah. and apply other places. And, and then also, what were some of the keys to your success and your longevity in that particular organization as well? Yeah, sure. Um, yes, Deloitte was, um, has been kind of at the forefront of a lot of this work. It's part of why my win role was like um, such a, an amazing role to have because uh, mm -hmm. the Women's Initiative was started in the 70s. It was started before it was a thing in most companies and it was mm -hmm. one of the first places where something like that was started. So yeah, they're definitely you know groundbreaking. They do a lot of research similar to like McKinsey in these spaces. And I would say mm -hmm. McKinsey has an amazing research on topics around this as well. I always wait for their fall reports that are gonna be coming out soon you know, on women in the workplace in particular. 
Um, I would say that there, like, there's a lot written around tech, obviously, like that, you know, the bro culture, and that's one space where I think there's some learnings and a lot of, you know, people trying to do interventions. And then financial services would be the other place where I think those are the two industries where there's just such disparity, and that there's more conversations I'm seeing about those two spaces than others. But I agree with you. You know, one of the reasons I'm so interested in the academic role that I have is I find that there's actually a lot of research that a lot of academic institutions have had, but for whatever reason, it's not getting to companies. So they literally have done um, research where they have, you know, had people in, in situations and done lab work for like a year or two, and they've published papers, but I never in my Deloitte role ever saw any of that research because there's such like a wall. So I actually think more than even across industry, like going to some of the academic research in this space is really important because there's some professors doing profound work in that space. Yeah, thank you. Excellent, Roy. We appreciate you being here. So Deepa, I do want to, in the few moments we have left, to get your commentary on, again, this, this conversation that seems to have of late um, surfaced with great level of um, passion and interest among so many around the intersection of DEI and justice work. Do you see them connected? Do you see them as separate bodies of work? What's your take on it? I saw that post that went viral <laughs> that Lily did. Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting. I... I guess the way I see it um, is that I don't see them as separate things, but I think that there's a lot more to the justice work that the DEI work isn't solving for. So it's almost like a part mm -hmm. of the justice work, but I don't necessarily feel like a justice practitioner because I feel like I'm very focused on the workplace. I'm very focused on particular issues. And a lot of the justice work is really more about in my mind, like a little bit more radical, a little bit more in your face, a little bit like of larger issues that absolutely need to be addressed. And so I don't think they're two different things. Like I, there, was so, I mean, there were thousands of comments, but I almost feel like um, folks like Michelle Kim and, and others yeah. do a little bit more in the justice space, even though they do DNI work. Whereas right. I feel like I feel, I feel like I don't. I, it would be wrong for, for me to say that I do justice work because I don't. I don't really step into those spaces as much. Well. Yeah. Very but yeah, very much respect that. Thank you so much for your for your thoughts. So we have two minutes left and I will love for you to do the honors of closing us out. And so a question that I tend to present at the end of the, the hour of time is what have we not talked about today that you're having a lot of energy or passion around um, that you want to socialize with this community? I wanna give you a chance to share that. Yeah, you know, I, I did a post a couple of weeks ago and I keep coming back to it because it, it's still getting a lot of attention I said, I did something where I said, I didn't want to be the best anymore, that so much of my life was focused on being like the best, right? The best schools and the best jobs and doing the best I could. And that that is all really exhausting. And like, so mm -hmm. people are not really focused on being the best at things anymore. And also, by the way, that's kind of feels like a very empty thing to chase. What do we yeah. want to replace that with? And so I guess my question to the group or the, the thing I want to leave us all with is a lot of what was the undertow of our conversation today was value. And as we step away from the values we have all been taught to chase, right, in, in capitalism and corporate America in particular, what do we want to replace that with? And to start to think about those things and think about how you show up in those ways in the workplace is my, is my kind of question to the group or my, my parting thought. 
I love that. I love that. Yes. And that's certainly something that we all should be um, spending some time in self-reflection around um, the values piece, because it, it really should be the core of all of our decision-making around how we show up and what we attach ourselves to. And so Deepa, thank you so very much for gracing us with your presence and your wisdom and your thoughts. And um, I hope that each of you in this community will go out if you haven't already and purchase the first, the few, and the only. You will not regret it. And um, we look forward to continuing to follow your success and, um, and the work that you're doing. And we're just grateful that you took the time today to share with us. So thank you so very much. Um, if each of you that have um, been a part of today's Intentional Conversations um, community, if you found the information to be helpful, then I do encourage you to share it out with others in your network. We hope to see you back here next Friday for SIA Justice for another hour of Intentional Conversations. Have a great, safe, and healthy weekend. And um, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye, everyone.